All right. Acts 16, verses 35 to 40 is our text. The message title, Just One. We're in the second missionary journey of Paul and Silas. If you remember, um, they were in the city of Philippi. Lydia and her household was saved. The jailer and his household was saved, as we talked about last week. And this miracle happened when, uh, as they were kind of worshiping, praying at midnight, the, the, the chains basically fell off of all of the, the inmates. And um, this jailer had this powerful moment going from suicide to salvation with the span, within the span of minutes. And we're going to... Uh, read the aftermath, so to speak, of that freeing of Paul and Silas and the salvation of the jailer. Verse 35, Now when day came, okay, and so they had been freed that, that midnight, that night before, and when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now therefore come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city, and they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Okay. Amen. Let me kind of talk into the setting here, just in case you missed it in our reading. Last week, we, we saw how Paul and Silas were arrested because these folks that had a slave girl who was bringing them profit by fortune-telling was exercised of her demons and she was no longer a source of income for these folks. And so these folks, having been kind of in a sense robbed of their money, felt as though Paul and Silas were the culprits, so they seized them, brought them in front of the officials and had them arrested. Paul and Silas are thrown into the inner part of the prison and the jailer there is guarding them. They're praying and worshiping God in the middle of the night and suddenly their chains are released and they are set free. The jailer now is awakened by what is happening and realizing, wait, where did everybody go? And he's about to kill himself because he knows that if he doesn't do it, somebody else is going to kill him because all of these prisoners are gone. And Paul, realizing what this jailer is about to do, comes out from the darkness and says, hey, stop. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. And this jailer then goes from the moment of wanting to take his life and then realizing that it was a miracle that set, set these folks free, decided, wait, something is happening in these folks' lives and I need some of that. And then he goes now into the place of repentance. He believes in God and then he brings Paul and Silas to his house. And his entire household believes in the Lord. But when daybreak comes, word comes by uh, some officials, and they say to the jailer, all right, let them go. We're going to set them free. And if you missed it, you got to understand what's happening here. Paul and Silas are set free. They go to the jailer's house in the middle of the night. That entire household is saved. But guess what happens by morning? They bring themselves back into the jail. 
because those people are coming from the, the higher-ups of town, and they came to the jail to say, here's the note, set those guys free. And the jailer's there. And the jailer says to Paul and Silas, word came, now come out. And so if you missed it, Paul and Silas decided to go back to the very prison they were freed from. They did this because they knew what was at stake for the jailer. That if Paul and Silas were not there come morning, they knew that the jailer's life would be in danger. He knew it. The jailer knew it. That's why he wanted to kill himself the night before when he thought the prisoners were gone. And so Paul and Silas do something amazing. They bring themselves back to the very place of imprisonment that they were set free from just the night before. This, you, you got to be able to see that, right? And the word that comes set them free. And Paul and Silas, they're in, a, in a moment, they're just kind of upraged a little bit. They're like, wait, wait a minute, they beat us without cause? We are actually citizens of Rome? And they can't be doing this to their, their folks, right? And they say, you know what, we're not going to get out of this prison like that. We're not just going to cower out with our tail between our legs as if nothing happened. No, if they want us out, they can come themselves and lead us out by the hand. And so the policemen go back to the chief officials and say, wait a minute, these guys are not going out by themselves. I think you need to get there. The Roman citizens, actually. And so now they begin to, to have fear because it, is, it was completely not right to treat Roman citizens this way and they did not know that they were citizens. But now that they know that, they're figuring out, wait a minute, we're in a little pickle here. What should we do? And so they come to the prison and they're now begging a very different posture. They're, they're on their knees, in a sense, begging, would you just please get out of our city? Would you please? We're just begging you. We're asking you nicely now, right? Just leave. And they, on their own terms, visit Lydia and her household first, and then they leave. I, this passage is a powerful passage. Many things that you, as you read it slowly and digest the context of what is happening here, there is so much that you can get. But this message is titled Just One, right? It's titled Just One. Now, have you ever said that, right? It's like you forgot something at a place. Oh, it's just one, right? Or you forgot somebody. Oh, it's just one, right? But you've probably said that phrase before. When you say just one, you are imputing a value on that. When you say just, that's what you're doing to it, right? It's just one. Meaning you are lowering the value, what you esteem it to be, because it is only one of many. That's when we say the phrase, just one. And that's this message. Because as I look at this passage, I see something phenomenal that God will do. And I actually see it all throughout Scripture. Now, before I get back to the passage, let me trend, transport you to Luke chapter 15. Jesus is ministering on the earth. He is with a bunch of people that need salvation. The Bible called it in chapter 15, a bunch of sinners. Okay? And so Jesus is with a group of people that really are, are filled with loose living and they need salvation. And some religious folks find out that Jesus is sitting with folks and they come by and they begin to cast a judgment not just on Jesus, but on the people that he's sitting with. I can't believe you're sitting with sinners, they're saying. 
How can you consider yourself a teacher of the law by any measure of the word if you are sitting with such folks? And by saying this, they are imputing or lowering the value of the people that Jesus is sitting with. They're not worthy of that. You shouldn't be sitting there. There are people who are more worthy of your company right now. There are people who are more worthy of the words that you can speak right now. Why are you sitting with these people? And Jesus catches the moment, right? He catches the energy in the room, in the tone of their voice, and He begins to tell them a story. Which one of you? If you had a hundred sheep, and one had gone missing, would not leave 99 in an open pasture and go out and search for the one that is lost. That you would be quick to do this. And once you have found it, you would throw it back on your shoulders, march back into town, tell all of your friends and neighbors, the sheep that I had lost is now found. Rejoice with me. And the point of what Jesus was saying was, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 people that don't need any repentance at all. And he was imputing a value here. He wasn't saying that 99 were unimportant. What he was saying was, the one is very important. And he was giving a value to the one. He was lifting it up. And not saying it's better than the rest, but it's just as valuable as the rest. You put 99 on this side of the scale, and you have just one on this side. It still balances. Because there is tremendous value in this lost soul. And I want you to see that he's telling all of the people that are incriminating his guests, that are looking down upon the people he's talking to. And I want you to know that that person has value. I want you to know that that person has value. You can go back to your synagogue and surround yourself with plenty of people that know the law of Moses, but I want you to know that this person right here will bring a great amount of joy into heaven. And he was giving a value to that person, to that person, to that person. And these were the folks that the religious circles did not give much value to. And then he goes on. There was a woman who had ten coins and lost one. And that woman turned on all the lights, brought out the broom, moved all of the furniture. And when she found that one coin, she would tell everybody, the coin that I lost is found. Rejoice with me. Right? And the entire point is saying, is not on necessarily the face value of the coin. Because nine coins is definitely more value than one. But he's saying, when you have that lost coin and you find it, there is a joy that cannot be compared to the face value of what is written on this piece of metal. There is something beyond it. Something more powerful, more intrinsic to its value than what it says on the surface. And so it is with people. That too often, I, I can walk by people, I can drive by people, I can look at people and, and just place a value on them. That when I'm in a mingle session, that I, 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 I want to spend time talking with the people that, can, that have, can, can speak into my career, that can give me a certain amount of benefits, and we have values that we place on people. And we do this all of the time. 
But we need to be able to see beyond, underneath, and see something that is so intrinsic in each individual, even if in the eyes of many or in society they are just one. And so this message, just one, it looks into this, 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 this aspect of the gospel, this heart of God. And the first point will be this, that God will move heaven and earth for one person's salvation. I was thinking about this passage, and as I allowed it to sink in, I was thinking about the earthquake for a second. Let's just think about an earthquake, because if you go back to the passage that we read last time, you know, they were kind of praising and worshiping, doing what they were in the middle of the night, and an earthquake happened. And when the earth shook, suddenly their chains loosened, and the doors were opened, and these prisoners were set free, right? So Paul and Silas and company, woohoo, freedom, right? They're gone now, out the doors they can go, walk as free men, right? And so I see the earthquake from two vantage points. Right? I see it from two vantage points. Why? I see it from God's vantage point and man's vantage point. Now man's vantage point says this, that the earthquake was given so that God would set Paul and Silas free. That's like on the surface. But as you really understand it, I see it from God's perspective. God sent an earthquake to actually save the jailer and his household. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? As we unpackage this passage of Scripture, by morning... Paul and Silas were back in prison, <laughs> right? And the letter was on its way. The letter was on its way that they would be free men. So Paul and Silas actually didn't need an earthquake to set them free because within a couple of hours, they would have been set free anyway because the letters, they would, they would have come, right? And so that earthquake happening was not to set Paul and Silas free, because that was happening. It was on its, in, in motion already, right? The earthquake happening, if you think about what the true fruit of that occurrence was, it was the salvation of the jailer and his household, right? And so God sends the earthquake. They're free. The jailer says, oh, no, i got to kill myself because someone else is going to kill me if I don't. And then Paul says, stop! And then this jailer is brought to his salvation knees. And salvation comes to his household. And I see the earthquake happening from God's vantage point because He's saving a household. And as I think about that, that's a powerful thing for me. The lengths that God will go to save one soul. The things that God will do in order to open up a person's heart for salvation. Because of the value that He places on an individual. No. Let me bring you back to Luke 15. The chapter ends with a third parable. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son. Right? That there was a, a father who had two sons, an elder and a younger. And the younger one was kind of that wild horse, right? He was the one, the adventurous type, right? Didn't really like the rules, didn't like to be confined. And he says, you know what, I'm just tired of working for dad. You know, I got ideas of my own. I got things I wanted to go. I, I do. I got places I want to go. And so he, you know, it doesn't even have to muster up the courage. He just goes up to dad arrogantly, says, dad, give me my money. 
Give me everything that would belong to me if you pass. Give me my inheritance early. I want an early retirement, so to speak, early withdrawal. And the father, knowing the, the character and, the, and the, the disposition of his son, just concedes. He says, okay, son, you want what's yours? So he, he divides his estate and everything that his son would have, he, he gives it to him. And the parable goes on that it says that the younger son went to a distant place, right? And there's a lot of imagery there, right? He wanted to really separate himself from dad and family and home, right? So he goes to a far off place and it says he squandered all of his inheritance on loose living, right? He was just living and not partying, drinking every night, being with people and just kind of just enjoying life and singlehood, right? But soon the money was gone, right? He's opened up the wall and not a lot of stuff left. And he's beginning to say, wait a minute, I had a great time these last however many weeks or months, however long it lasted. But you know what? There's nothing there. And suddenly all of the friends that he had at the parties, all of the people he was buying drinks rounds for, those people still, wait, where did everybody go? You know, just last week, there was like dozens of people around me just laughing at my jokes, just waiting to hear what I had to say. But now I can't pick up the bill anymore. And where did everybody go? They're not here anymore. They're not celebrating with me. And he's like, wait a minute, this uh, is kind of lonely. And now he needs some help. He's not just the one dishing out the money. Now he's at the place where he needs to be on the receiving end of it because he's got none. He's at a place where he's got no family, no friends. And he's realizing, wait a minute, a day passes and the next day comes and he's like, I'm kind of hungry here. I need to find a job. And scripture says he attaches himself to a citizen of that land. And then he begins to work the pig pen, right? That's how the parable goes. He works the pig pen and he's looking at these pigs that are eating all of this kind of stuff. And his mind is going berserk because he's hungry, right? And he's thinking, wait a minute, I'm grueling over pig slop and I'm, all of the hired folks at my dad's place, they all have enough bread to eat. What am I doing here? This is foolish, this is stupid of me. I gotta get back there. I gotta go home. And he's thinking, what am I gonna say? I took everything, I was so arrogant when I left. I need to have a different heart and a different spirit. I, I'm going to go tail between my legs, head down. I'm going to look at his feet. And I'm just going to say, Dad, I, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I, I just want to be a hired servant in your home. And he's rehearsing this. He's thinking, man, is he going to take it? Is he not? Is he going to take it? Is he not? I got nothing here. I'm filthy, I'm hungry, no one wants to come close to me, no one's given me anything. And so he starts the journey back home. And can you imagine how many times he's replaying this in his mind? Have you ever gone into an interview thinking what you're going to say? How many times do you say that over and over and over? On our first date, what am I going to say first? You know, over and over. This is the journey that's in front of this young son. He's got a, a long ways to go and all he's thinking about is, will dad accept me, will dad reject me? That's all he's thinking about. And so this, this entire speech is replaying in his mind, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just receive me as a servant of yours. And he's replaying this over and over. And the closer he gets, his heart starts to race. And he can see, you can see him now. He's on the last stretch, the last path towards home. And the parable that Jesus gives, he throws a twist. It says that when the son was yet 
a far distance away, when he was far off, when he was like way down the road and just a speck from the house, dad was at the window. window. And it's not like this was like the day after. We're talking about something that is showing the character of the father, that he was waiting for the son to come back. And he had it in his disposition, his daily routine, whatever it was, each day he would get up and look down the road, waiting for his son to return. And it says that when the son was far off, that dad did something uncharacteristic of dads. He ran to his son. You can't miss that. You can't miss the fact that when Jesus was teaching about the heart of God, he was saying that the dad ran to his son. And the dad forgot all pride, position, authority. It means nothing right now. Me waiting for my son to come through that door, waiting in an inner room with my hands crossed, sitting on the big chair. That's not the image I want to give to my son. I want, to see he, I want him to see me, hands and arms flailing, running to him. I want him to know how much I missed him. I want him to know that I have been waiting every single day. That if he looked at the scratches on my wall, I've been counting the days. And it says that the dad ran. As soon as he found him, he just smothered him. He says, hey! Right? And the son, is, he's got this spiel, right? He's thinking, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and earth and I'm no longer worthy. And the dad cuts him off. He says, stop. Hey, go bring a robe. Get something clean on this son of mine. Get the family ring. Put it on his finger. His feet are filthy and blistered. Put some sandals on them. And then he carries him by the arm. And he says to some other servants, kill the fattest calf you got. We're having a party tonight. The elder son, hard at work all day probably, from morning until dawn. He's approaching the house after a long day's work. What's that noise? Well, what's, what's all these people doing here? And he begins, hey, hey, come here. What's going on in there? And the servant says, hey, you didn't hear? Your brother's back. Your dad threw a party for him. Everybody in town is inside, and the, and the brother should be happy right now, right? The brother says, oh, my brother, yes, he's back. He's back. Well, that's not the description that this elder brother had. Suddenly, his curiosity turned to anger, bitterness even. How? How? Why? And now he's rehearsing something. He's rehearsing what he's going to say to Dad. Dad, I, I've, I've served you all of these years. I've done everything you've wanted me to do, everything you've asked of me. And not once have you even given me a small little kid, a little tiny animal for my friends and I to enjoy. And yet this son of yours who squandered half of your wealth on loose living and prostitutes has come back with nothing to show for himself and you throw him a party and the entire town is here? How can this be? This is his speech. And he gets it all off on dad when he sees him. Dad, and he goes off on him. And the dad just takes it. Takes everything his elder son says. And after he's done, he's unloaded his chest and he says, son, all that I have is yours. But I want you to see that this brother of yours was lost and now he's found. 
that all heaven rejoices. And what the father was effectively doing in reversing in the mind of the elder brother was the value of the younger son. Too often we go about life imputing lower values on people based on what they look like, what they've done, their status in different places. But God looks so much deeper and He sees lost people. And He sees those folks and He lifts them up and He gives them a value that the world does not. And He says, this just one is important to me. That all heaven that all earth can be moved from God's vantage point for the one. I think when we embrace this, it changes how we look at people, how we interact with them. The second thing that I'll say is this, that all heaven rejoices over one repentant person. Isn't that in the parable? All three of them, right? Whether it be the lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. That the end point is that there is joy in heaven that cannot be compared. You cannot really put it and put it like it's apples to orange. I mean, there is so much joy in heaven when one person repents. I want you to see the value in one person coming to Jesus. I want you to see the value of one person from the snatches of the devil, from the snares of hell being delivered to heaven. I want you to see the value and the great joy in that. And this goes against how companies operate, doesn't it? Because if you think about it, we, we democratize the importance of results based on majority. Right? And so like, if you want to know what's important, you, you, you look at that, right? You, you base it on the majority. What's selling the best? All right, that's what we should focus on, right? Where are the greatest amount of positive five-star reviews coming for? That's what we want to do. And we democratize it. We base it on where the majority of people are saying yes to. Right? That's what's important to us now. Right? Because that's going to affect the bottom line the most. And from our earthly human vantage point, this is the way we consider what is important. Where we want to invest our resources but from God's vantage point, it's so different because He sees supreme value in one. Supreme value, right? And so if you unpackage that, you and I are of infinite worth to God. That I as an individual am of infinite worth to God. And so are you. The sacrifice that's involved to reach the one. Like in that parable of the father running and letting go of all fatherly position and pride and running to his son. To kind of make it personal, to give you a small little microcosm, uh, Christopher uh, has been sick this past week. He had a, like a stomach virus and so he wasn't really feeling it. So he's been kind of a little off all week, but uh, you know, Jenny and I, we decided to take an impromptu vacation or like a little tiny getaway to Palm Springs. So we left uh, Thursday and we got back yesterday. And you know, we had, a, you know, the kids had a blast. Christopher was feeling better and uh, on the car ride home, 
both kids fell asleep, of course, they always do. It wasn't that a great thing as a kid, you know, you could always just sleep in the car and your parents would carry you up to where, I was, I mean, I, man, I, that was, that's a great perk of being a kid, right? Unless you're like a big kid and they just wake you up because you're too heavy to be carried, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so the, the kids fell asleep and they, uh, we brought them in and they were like, covered with like chlorine water that had dried up because we couldn't shower them before we left. And uh, so I'm like, we got to get the kids up and shower them. And so Jacob got up, no problem. But Christopher, he was still sleeping. And uh, we're like, okay, well, we'll let him kind of rest for a little bit and give him a shower and then put him back to bed right away. And um, uh, finally got him upstairs and both of the kids ready for a shower. And um, Christopher was like, still like half sleeping, like leaning on the bed like this, right? And um, I'm like, okay, Christopher, we want you to go first because then I will just shower you real quick and then throw your pajamas on. Then you'll be right back in bed within a matter of minutes, right? And so I carried Christopher and then uh, I basically stood in front of the shower for a little bit in front of hot water and just let it kind of hit him. And then he started to cry. He was like, wait, no, Jacob goes first. Because, you know, right? he just, he wasn't happy because, you know, he's tired and all this stuff. He wants to sleep more. He's like, no, you just put me in. I don't want to be in here. Jacob should go first. And so he wasn't feeling it. And uh, finally, get him out. He's done. Jacob gets in. And they're all lotioned and lathered up, right? All softened and moisturized and get their PJs on. And Christopher's still in the other room. And... Um, I, my, myself, my, me, Jenny, and Jacob are in the kids' room. You know, they're there. Christopher's by himself in our room. And he kind of overhears what's happening. And so he's kind of curious. And so he kind of comes out to the, that little kind of hallway area. And right there, he just kind of stays. And right there, he's still not kind of feeling it. And as a, as a dad, I was sitting on, on the chair in the kids' room. I was saying, hey, come here. Come here to me. But he didn't want to come. And something was really kind of uncomfortable in him. And, you know, as he began to, uh, to be upset, I, I realized that I needed to go to him. And uh, for, if you're a parent, you understand the dynamic here. Um, there's a part of p parenting, not in terms of like of this pride and whatnot, but you're always asking your kids to come to you where you're at. And, it's, it's, and so I was kind of just sitting on this chair, but I realized that in the midst of everything that was happening, that, that I needed to get up off of this chair and go to my son and just pick him up right from that moment. And as this was happening, I wasn't calculating this message or, or anything, but after this entire thing, this morning as I was kind of meditating, in a small little way, I began to see what happened in those few moments last night as a representation of maybe this parable of the prodigal son and this message as a whole. And I began to see something that's involved in reaching one person. It's called sacrifice. It's called humility. And if God will ever call you to reach out into the lives of individuals, to be a voice of God's love, an instrument of the love of Christ, and to share the gospel with people, that there will be moments and situations that will seem kind of, in a sense, like, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense. It feels like it's too much. That I, and, but in order for us to reach an individual, that there is a moment where we have to understand that sacrifice 
is required. And I go back to Paul and Silas. I go back to them being freed from this prison and them willingly going back into the very chains that they were freed from just hours earlier because of the life of this jailer that was now saved. What is involved in reaching people? What's the, what's the price tag there as an individual, as a Christian who has been called by God to share that love with people? And so as I kind of tail off, let me sh share this. What is the sacrifice involved? You know, because you're going to think to yourself, all of this sacrifice and time and energy for one person? Right? It's not going to make sense. You're going to be thinking, it's just not worth it. It doesn't compute, right? You know, there are other people that are more worthy of the time that I have, of the energy and resources that I have. But this is what I want to say, that we need to be led by the Spirit. To do things that are unnatural. To do things that require more of ourselves. Because the Bible is filled with things that are not natural, but God considers to be good or right. That it's not natural to turn the other cheek when we're slapped on one of them. That it's not natural to give our coat when someone takes our shirt. That it's not natural to walk two miles with somebody that asks us to go one. That it's not natural to deny ourselves. It's not natural to give a tenth of what we have. It's not natural to love our enemies. There are a lot of things in the Bible that are not natural to do, but God says that this is good for you to do. And so it is when we are used by God to reach and save a soul. That there will be things that we can do and lay down and sacrifice that won't seem natural. will be, in a sense, we're fighting against ourselves. But we need to be led by the Spirit in those moments. That when we are led by the Spirit, we can go back into the very prisons we were released from. That we can do things for individuals, for their salvation. Because we impute a value on them that God sees. That God sees them of infinite value and worth. And as a representative of Christ, so should we. Amen? As the praise team comes back, let me finish with one verse of Scripture, Romans 15.1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. That This is the call that God has on your life, that as you grow in your faith, and God will call you to not just please yourself, to please ourselves, but to do things where we lay things down for those that don't have the strength and that need us to be an instrument of God's love and power for them. May we be the people like Paul and Silas who will do things that are unnatural, that require great sacrifice because we believe in people like that jailer. Amen? Amen.